Well, it's, um, as we've mentioned before, today is Trinity Sunday. It's a day when we are reminded, or if we don't know, we learn what it is to worship a God who is three and yet one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Baptist Church, of course, as I said, we don't often observe Trinity Sunday. In fact, we don't often observe the church calendar, really. Apart from Christmas and Easter, we do all right with those. But we don't really look at Trinity Sunday. It's something which passes us by. We're normally doing something different. But this year happens that we finished our frontline course and I thought we could look at Trinity Sunday. It's not that we don't recognise the Trinity in the Baptist Church, of course. It's not that we don't worship Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But it's not something that we often pause to think about a great deal. And maybe I think the reason that we don't pause to think about it a great deal is because actually when we think about the Trinity, it's quite a hard thing to get our minds around. It's a little bit difficult. It's not the easiest subject to work out. That's not to say people haven't tried over the years. There's been many complex theological theories about the Trinity, as well as a number of um, more simplistic analogies which we try and come up with to help us understand this great mystery as it is described. One of the ones that I grew up with when I was in youth group to demonstrate the Trinity was the idea of water. People used to say, oh, the Trinity is like water, because water can be water, but it can also be steam, and it can be ice. You see, three in one. Which was okay, up to a point, but it did sort of imply that God like changed, morphed, and became different things at different times. There was other analogies that people had. One was of an egg, Did you hear the egg one? You've got an egg. It's an egg, but it's made up of three things. It's got the shell, and it's got the yolk, and it's got the egg white. Three in one. Or a fruit. People said God is like a fruit. You know, there's the peel, and then there's the seeds, and then there's the flesh. There were lots of analogies that people came up with to describe the Trinity, and still do. A God who is three, and yet one. But none of these really hit the mark, or are very accurate. When I was thinking about it, I thought, what's my favourite food? Ah, a potato. You can have mash, or chips, or jacket. And then I thought, well, it's not really fitting to refer to Almighty God as a potato. So I dropped that one fairly quickly. And yet we continue to try every day to come up with simple, ordinary things that will describe the Trinity. The holy mystery of a God who is one God and yet three distinct characters. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Artists are the people who have tried to depict the Trinity the most. And they normally follow a similar pattern. We've got a few pictures here. They normally follow this pattern. A big God, God the Father, who sits on a massive throne or stands very distinct at the back. And then Jesus is often on a cross because he came as a sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit, can you see the Holy Spirit on that one? just sort of looks like a little little white above Jesus' head or a collar around God. That's the Holy Spirit. So you get big God, you get 
Jesus, have I got a pointer? Is that the red thing? Oh, oh, there, Holy Spirit. Yeah, so we have God, oh, Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. And that's normally how artists depict. So there again, you have God the Father holding Jesus on the cross, and then the Holy Spirit is the dove in the background. These are how various artists depict the Trinity. I think the Holy Spirit's there. And surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, as we have in the Bible as well, sometimes depicted differently. God is holding symbols. Jesus is holding symbols. But very, very similar. This is how the Trinity has been depicted over the years. Sometimes God and Jesus are of similar sizes, like in that one, but the Holy Spirit is always depicted as the dove there. And then occasionally we have more abstract, often circles, where the Trinity is depicted by symbols. God often as the creator. I'm liking this pointer. The hand creating, and then Jesus as the cross, and the Holy Spirit as the dove. And these are the images, the pictures, the symbols which artists have used to depict the Trinity and what God, three in one, is like. I once read a book by a man called Tom Smale. It was recommended to me by a lecturer at Spurgeon's College, which I probably shouldn't have read it because it was quite difficult. It was called, like father, like son, the Trinity imaged in our humanity. Anyone read it? No. I didn't finish it. It's probably one for the sabbatical. (laughs) Bottom of the pile. Um, But I remember getting totally confused by it. It was very in-depth and tried to explain how the Father and the Son were kept apart by the energy of the Spirit. And I was all totally confused. I didn't understand how God could function as Father, Son and Holy Spirit and yet be one God. In my mind, I'd always done it a bit more of a simplistic way. And, you know, sometimes we can't understand. But that doesn't mean that we give up. That doesn't mean we go, oh, I don't understand that. That's too difficult for me. I'm going to let someone of greater brain do it because it is a mystery but as Richard Raw, a Franciscan priest who some of you might know says remember mystery isn't something that you cannot understand it is something that you can endlessly understand there is no point at which you can say I've got it always and forever mystery gets you so mystery doesn't mean we give up it means we keep delving and looking And we never get it, but maybe bits are revealed to us. It's something we continue to investigate and wonder at. And so we have Trinity Sunday, a day to remind us to think and to meditate and to spend a little bit of time delving into the mystery of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rob's going to come and just bring a quick Bible reading for us this morning. The reading is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, and starting at verse 11. Final greetings. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a reading, as Rob said, from the book of 2 Corinthians, which is a record of a second letter sent to the church at Corinth by the Apostle Paul. And unlike the first letter, this letter is a different letter. It's... um, It's a very personal letter. The first letter to the Corinthians is all about challenging them about their behaviour and how they need to act and how they need to um, look at what they're doing. But the second letter is a very personal one because it talks a lot about Paul and his life and his weaknesses. It talks about his hardship and his suffering. It's sent to the church in Corinth as a defence of his ministry because people are attacking him and saying things about him that aren't true. So he sends this letter. And it gives insights into his struggles to follow God. It's, it's the letter that has the famous phrase in about the thorn in the flesh that Paul carries around. But it ends with these famous words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. To which we often add, forevermore. Amen. Or if you like, this letter ends with the words of the grace, that very, very famous prayer that down the years Christians have said, whether it be at mealtimes or at the end of a service or to round off a meeting, this is the famous prayer that we say together. Most of us know it off by heart. But to be honest, I have to tell you that even though it's very, very famous, when I say it, I'm not often really focusing on the words, on what's in it, what it's actually saying. To be quite honest, what I'm doing, rather than focusing on the words, is normally concerned about what I'm going to do when I'm saying it. Because often when we say the grace, we look at each other, and I'm thinking, which way do I look first? And often I look one way, and everyone's looking the other way, and I'm like, okay, that was wrong. Do I smile when I say it? Do I tilt my head? Do I look, like, encouragingly at people? Or do I just say it and close my eyes? Not that these things go through my mind, that's not what I'm thinking when I'm saying it, but normally I'm more concerned about how I say the grace rather than what I'm saying, what words are in it. Simon often refers to it as the Joker's Prayer because we're all saying it like this with a massive smile on our face. But it's got some great words and we don't often think about these, what these words are because in a nutshell, this is probably as close as we're going to get to describing the God that we believe in. In a nutshell, this is the God we believe in. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see, Paul may be defending his ministry in this letter. He may have wanted those in Corinth to know his passion and to know that he was honest before God. But most of all, he wanted them to know God to know what God was like, and to know how much God loved them. And so he finishes with this prayer, if you like. He finishes by telling them what God is like. This is what your focus should be. This is the God that we worship. And what he says about God in this short prayer is that God is a God of love. May the love of God. He doesn't say, may the judgment of God or may the holiness of God, may the love of God, the God we worship is a God 
of love, which isn't very revolutionary, maybe, for us today. We talk about a God of love all the time. But compared to the gods that people worshipped in the time of Paul, this was very revolutionary. And I guess some of the gods that people worship today, a God of love is an amazing God. God is love, says Paul. And the very reason we know that he is love, beyond any doubt, is because he is Trinity. Because he's not a one-dimensional God who sits on a throne far, far away, who is judgmental and distant, who is dictatorial, who is unknown apart from rumours and tradition. He's not like that. He is three in one. He is Trinity. And so we know that God is love because we have seen this love in the grace of Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the love of God in the grace of Jesus, the Son of God who came down from that mighty throne that we might know what God was like, to show us time and time again that God is love, that God is gracious, that God is compassionate, that God is accepting. Or as Paul says earlier in this letter, in chapter 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. God is love, says Paul. And Jesus came to show that love and by his grace to make that love available to everyone. And you know, we wouldn't have known this. We wouldn't have known about this love unless we had seen Jesus. We would have known a God far from us who was pictured to be love, who was rumoured to be good, who was called gracious and compassionate. But we wouldn't have known it We wouldn't have known what this was like until Jesus came to make God real in our everyday lives. Until the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Do you know, um, quite a few years ago, Simon and I went on holiday, some of you know this, to Switzerland. We went walking, there's lots of stories about that. But one of the times we were there, someone said to us, oh, you need to go up to the top of the Eiger mountain. It's a very famous mountain. Many of you will know about it. But the history behind the Eiger mountain is that lots of people tried to climb it years and years ago. And there were lots of horrific stories about people being stranded and frozen to death and things like that. So my mom took great delight in telling me that when she went years before us, you could actually look through binoculars and see the bodies hanging off the mountain. I said, oh, Mum, I don't know whether I'll be doing that, but thanks for the info. But by the time we got there, they'd cleared them off, so it's all right. But someone said, you need to go up the Eiger, because it's amazing. You get up the top, and it's like you're in the mountain. They described it to us, and we thought, well, that does sound quite good. And so we went up. We didn't climb. You can get a train. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I should have said it. So we hiked up the mountain. (laughs) And we got off the train... And we were up at the top and we walked out. And it was as amazing as people had said. But there were also things that they didn't describe, which we felt when we were up there. You could be around the main touristy bit where everyone was. You could buy your souvenirs. Or you could go for a walk on the top of the mountain. And we thought we'd go for a walk. And partway along our walk, we found ourselves on our own. 
We were walking in the snow at the top of a mountain and you started to breathe heavily because there wasn't a lot of oxygen. Obviously, it's not Everest, but, you know, it was harder to breathe. And you began to feel a little bit lightheaded, a little bit sick, but you thought, we're at the top of a mountain. We've got on a train, we've travelled up. The air is clear and bright, but it's hard to breathe. And you felt like real mountaineers. You were like struggling through. I mean, round the corner there was a cafe, but you were struggling through. And you stood there and for as far as you could see, there were peaks and there was snow and it was amazing. And I came down and I thought, you know what? That was an amazing experience, which someone described to me, which I've described to you, but which I would never have fully understood or known until I'd gone up there. I would never have fully felt and understood what it was really like. And, you know, in the same way, neither would we have known the love of God unless we had seen the grace of Jesus and his willingness to die so that we could live. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. We would not have known God without the grace of Jesus. But we would also never be able to experience God and live in the love of God without the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the one who brings to life all that we hear and read and see, the one who enables us to really be a family rather than a group of individuals who believe the same thing, the one who holds us together in fellowship, even though we're so very, very different. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we would be all tradition and emptiness and ritual. We would be trying to appease a God we thought was loving, who we had heard good things about because of his son, but we really wouldn't be too sure that he was actually all good. So we'd try our best just in case. Because you see, the Holy Spirit makes God real within our lives today. This is God in threefold form, known as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God who is love, made known and available through the grace of Jesus Christ, becoming real to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is even more amazing than this very inadequate way that I've tried to describe God, is that God, even though he is complete in himself, even though he is Father, Son and Holy Spirit and doesn't need anyone else or anything else, because in him there is life, there is community, there is love, there is grace, there is everything in the Trinity that is ever needed. But even though that is true, God still chose to open up this life to us. And so as Trinity, he chose to create the world and sustain it. And as Trinity, he chose to redeem the world and to save it. And in saving it, he chose to invite us into the dynamic life that he has. This is my favourite picture of the Trinity. It's called Rublev's Icon, and you probably have seen it. It's very, very famous. But it's very, very different from all the other pictures of the Trinity that you get Because it does not depict God as a big Father God with Jesus on the cross and the Holy Spirit somewhere, 
that we can't even see. It depicts God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three equal persons sitting around a table in community together. But what is more amazing is that at the front of the table there is a gap, there is a space. If you have the bigger picture, you can see the space a bit more, but there are four sides to the table. Three of them are occupied, and one of them is empty. And many people say that is an invitation for others to gather at the table. It is an invitation from God for us to enter into his life. The Trinity, rather than being a closed circle or a distant God with Jesus on the cross and a dove, is God who invites us into that life. Not to be God, but to be his children and join him at the table. Trinity Sunday reminds us of this. But Trinity Sunday is also an invitation to enter again into the dynamic life that God offers. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Let's just take a minute of quiet. You might want to continue to look at the picture or just close your eyes and just think about the God who has brought us life and invites us again and again to join him in living that out. We're going to sing our final song together. Well known, fairly old. I never pick it because it rings of the 80s, but, you know, it just kept coming back to me. So we're going to sing it. Let's stand together and sing Shine, Jesus, Shine.